Several years back, uh, Michael Schur, who was a writer and producer on the sitcom Parks and Rec and creator of the sitcom Brooklyn Nine-Nine, had an epiphany. He had gone, as he did most days, into his local Starbucks to get his coffee, and he was charged $1.73 for it, so you know how many years ago this was. And he would hand over his $2, and he would get his change, and he would drop the change into the tip jar by the register. But on this particular day, he noticed exactly how he was going about that activity. He noted that he wasn't dropping that 27 cents, 27 cent tip into the jar right away. No, because as soon as he got his change, the barista would turn around to make his coffee. And he caught himself waiting until the barista would turn back around to look at him before he dropped the change in. And like every great philosopher, Sure was struck by a question. Why? Why am, I, why am I going about this activity in this particular way? Why do I need to be seen doing, honestly, what is the bare minimum of good in that moment? Is it to make myself feel good? Am I trying to make the barista feel just a little happier by noting that they are in fact getting some money in the tip jar for the day. Why do I go about this everyday banal activity in this particular way? And am I doing a good thing or not? And this line of questioning eventually led to the creation of Shure's next sitcom called The Good Place. He wanted to explore what it meant to be a good person, and he thought the best way to do that would be to explore what happens to people who have been good or bad in their particular afterlives. Now, Shore wanted to create a, a secular afterlife, and so he created a system of good places and bad places, each one a finite neighborhood with, with a few people in it, not a whole mass of good people or a whole mass of bad people. Everybody got their own neighborhood of good place or bad place. And in the cosmology of the good place, the system works like this. Every good thing that you do and every bad thing that you do has a positive or a negative point value assigned to it, and throughout your life, some otherworldly scoreboard is, is clocking exactly how you've lived your life, good actions and bad actions. And the best of the best, the perfect or the near-perfect scores, get to go to the good place. And everybody else goes to the bad place. And it has to be perfect, because perfect is possible. See, we can achieve perfection, says the architect of this particular neighborhood of the good place, Michael. So only the best of the best are in here. Except, except for our main character, Eleanor Shellstrop, who knows there's been a great mistake. 
because everything they're telling her about the life she led, all of her selfless, altruistic acts on behalf of other people, all of the pretty much abnegation of her own self and her own wants and her own happiness to benefit all of the world, she knows she never did. She's been brought somewhere she doesn't belong, and now, now she's a little nervous because the only other option to be if they figure her out is the bad place. Which she thinks, and I think most people would agree, is not entirely fair. There should be, she insists, a medium place. Some place where people who weren't actively altruistic and good all the time, but who didn't, you know, kill anybody or steal anything or actively, intentionally cause people harm could go and spend the rest of their lives without being tortured all the time. Eleanor enlists the help of her soulmate in her good place neighborhood because everyone in the good place gets to meet their actual soulmate. Eleanor's soulmate just happens to be a formerly now deceased professor of moral philosophy. And so she asks him to give her good lessons. Teach me how to be good. Let's see if I can earn my place here so I don't have to go to the bad place. And Chidi Anagonye agrees. He will teach her from the beginning of Greek philosophy on and on what it means to be good or what we know about what it means to be good and see if those lessons take and see if Eleanor can start to actively be a good person. And over the course of the series... They bond with their next-door neighbors, uh, Tahani Al-Jamil, a uh, socialite and philanthropist who, it turns out, does good things all the time to help people, but only because she's trying to get out from under the shadow of her sister. And her soulmate, Jason, who at first is thought to be a Buddhist monk named Jianyu with a vow of silence, but it turns out the only reason he's silent is he doesn't want anybody else to figure out that he's actually Jason Mendoza, a dummy from Tampa, Florida, or Jacksonville, Florida, who also does not belong in the good place. And they all start to learn together what it means to be a good person and try to learn how to be that person. But the question of the series, the question that Chidi tries to answer throughout, is what is good? And how do we get to a place where we are good enough? How do we get to a good place? It's a place, the setting of the show, and it's the metaphysical state of being all of the characters are trying to get to. In creating the show, Shur consulted with two professors of moral philosophy, Todd May from Clemson University and Pamela Hieronymi from the University of California, Los Angeles, to give him his own good lessons in order to work all of that into the series. And in the process, the series delves into all kinds of issues, what it means to be good, how to do the right thing for the right reasons, does it count if we do the right things for the wrong reasons? And despite all of his protestations that he needed to create a secular afterlife, 
quite a bit of theology creeps its way into the series as well. In fact, my first viewing, I sat down watching going, ah, this is a show about universalism, which is what we get to by the end, and I'll explain a little bit more later. After the show ended, not a few years, just a few years afterwards, uh, we hit the time of the pandemic and the lockdown. And Shore was watching people protesting mask wearing. Literally, he said, the least thing anybody could do to cause the most good in the world. And yet people were resisting. And he started thinking more and more about the ways of being good and the reasons of being, for being good that he explored in the show. But maybe not as deeply as he could because we still had to get the jokes per minute into a sitcom. It is very smart and it is very funny. And so he started working on a book, How to Be Perfect, The Correct Answer to Every Moral Question, it is called. He works with his friend Todd May, the philosopher from Clemson, on getting that all together. And he dives deeper into some of the lessons that he teaches throughout the show. And he does it in much the same path that Cheedy takes, trying to give good lessons to the folks who had become known as the Soul Squad on the television show. What he's asking really is, and inspired by viewing people protesting masks, we know there are right things to do. Why should we care about doing the right thing? And he starts by doing a quick survey through 2,400 years of Western philosophy and the major schools that have influenced us. He starts with Aristotle and the idea of virtue ethics. Aristotle's notion was that we know that we're being good, we know that we're living a good life, when we are flourishing as a human being, Aristotle uses the word eudaimonia to say flourishing. Most people translate it as happiness. Shore says happiness isn't quite good enough because I can be perfectly happy sitting in front of basketball games eating chips, but am I really flourishing as a human being in the process? No. And we flourish as human beings by obtaining virtues. Now, some of those virtues are inborn with us, and we have the skills to work on already, and some we obtain by observing others and practicing what it means to be and do, live those virtues. In other words, practice makes perfect. Eventually, we can keep trying and trying and trying, practicing all those virtues, and get to a place of moderation, Perfection, for Aristotle, interestingly enough, is not getting to the extreme place of being the best at a particular virtue. It is striking the right balance of holding a virtue. Aristotle talks about mildness as a virtue in his own time, meaning that I'm not angry all the time and being angry at everyone and shouting and screaming, and I'm not completely dead inside and have no emotions or responses to injustice in the world. I am just the right amount of angry. Angry when I need to be to use it as a tool, but not so angry that anger has no meaning anymore. And that is what Aristotle is trying to lead us to what he calls a golden mean, the nice average, the balance point of each virtue. 
Now, what's the right amount of any virtue? Aristotle leaves it up to us. We'll know it when we feel it. And what are the virtues we're obtaining? Well, he doesn't really answer that very well either, and this is where some of virtue ethics starts to break down. He gives a partial list of what he thinks are the obvious virtues, but of course there could be many others, he says. We'll know them when we find them, and of course the list that he gives 2,400 years ago isn't necessarily maybe the list of virtues we would want to practice for ourselves in 2022. Times change, mores change, virtues change. Aristotle thought slavery was great. Obviously, the virtues of the time are going to shift. So how do we then figure out what virtue is, and how do we get to that sense of what the right balance is? Sure takes us into the next big school of philosophy, consequentialism. And the sub-school that is known as utilitarianism, as propounded by Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill. And the basics of utilitarianism are this. All we need to do in life is actions that maximize the overall happiness of the world and minimize the amount of pain and suffering that we feel. And for Bentham and Mill, this was actually calculatable. We could math our way to morality in the school of utilitarianism. Bentham even talks about a scale of measure for happiness and for suffering, for hedons and dolors, and you could put a score to it, and you could just do the equation and know that you were doing the right thing in the moment. Math your way to morality. Now, as a general rule, maximize the happiness in the world and minimize the pain and the suffering, that's a pretty good, pretty good way to be. But in day-to-day -day practice, it starts to get a little complicated because it's hard actually do those calculations outward. The numbers and the measurements you might give to the dolors and the hedons of, the, of your actions aren't plainly evident. And we can never be 100% sure that we have taken all the factors into account when we are doing the calculation. We don't know to what degree the action we are doing that we think causes happiness may cause pain to someone down the road. And sometimes we don't take our own happiness and pain into account because we're thinking about how we do it for others. The critique of utilitarianism that gets used is the rather famous trolley problem. Do you flip the tracks on a trolley line, on a runaway trolley car, to kill one person instead of the five who are in your direct path? Now, utilitarianism, in its most basic sense, would say, yes, five is more than one, so obviously you flip the tracks and do that. But variations on the trolley problem point out more and more the problem. It's one thing to flip a switch. It feels kind of passive. It's the least thing you could do. But what if you were on a bridge overlooking the runaway trolley and you were standing next to a massive weightlifter who was leaning over the edge of the thing and you knew that if he fell off 
the bridge down onto the tracks, he would stop the trolley outright and save all those lives on both sides of the track. Would you push that guy over? Now it starts to get a little more complicated because now you're not sure you're necessarily doing the right thing. Oh, hey, what if you know one of the people? What if you know the one person who you're going to flip the track on and lead the trolley towards? What if they're a friend of yours? Better still, what if they're not a friend of yours? What if you rather dislike that person? Are you making a pure decision about what you're going to do, or have you been influenced by your hatred of an individual? And on and on and on. One of the funniest and best episodes of The Good Place is all about the trolley problem, where Chidi is physically placed on the runaway trolley and over and over again has to make the right decision. However, Chidi's defining characteristic is he can't make decisions about anything because he can never be sure if anything is ever the right thing. And so the trolley problem ends hilariously and kind of bloodily every time for him as he realizes the horror of his own indecisiveness. So utilitarianism in practice maybe doesn't work all that well. And Shure says, now wouldn't it be easier if we just had a list of rules to follow, if we didn't have to spend all our time doing math in our head, especially for those of us who might not be so adept at mathematics? Let's just get a list of rules, please. And he leads us then into the next major school of philosophy, deontology, the study of duty and obligation, and its greatest proponent, and my seminary nemesis, Immanuel Kant. <laughs> I wish I had this book when I was in seminary. It would have made a whole bunch of reading a whole bunch easier. Kant's great contribution to the philosophical mindset is his categorical imperative. He says that using our own pure ability of reason, we can arrive at maxims, at rules that are universal. Rules for living that are universal. Universal because we, our reason can lead us to applying them to everybody and not just us in the moment. And once we arrive at some sort of universal rule for living, we have a duty to follow that rule and act accordingly. No exceptions. Sure presents Kant throughout the book as someone who's just looking over your shoulder all the time going. <clears throat> In seminary, we defined the categorical imperative with the phrase, if we ought, then we must. If the universe is telling us we ought to do it, then we have to do it. And there are some rules that Kant points to as universal maxims that are rather good, that we should adopt. Primary one being don't use other people as means to our ends. That's a great rule for living. We should do that whenever we can. I would say that is indeed a categorical imperative. But again, like utilitarianism in practice, it starts to get a little more tricky. First up, pure reason? Do any of us really possess that? I mean, we are creatures bound up in our own prejudices and biases and life experiences that may not give us a whole window on how life works. 
And when we're faced with a moral dilemma that might be of some immediate need, it still takes us a little while to start using that reason if we do, in fact, have something that is pure to figure out what that universal rule might be that we have to follow in that moment. And even then, because our pure reason is never fully pure, we may do the thing we think the universe is telling us to do and find out that it still doesn't feel like the right thing to do, and what do we do with that? And Kant says, if that's how you feel, it means you didn't reason well enough, you gotta go back to the drawing board and spend a little more time trying to develop that universal rule. And meanwhile, the burning house that is waiting for you to come in and rescue someone is just sitting there burning. Give me another 30 or 40 minutes, I'll get to that rule eventually. Oh yes, we completely understand if everybody is living by that categorical imperative. So now we're left with the question, how can I, a flawed individual, reasonably assume that I've arrived at a rule that can actually apply to everyone? Who am I to say this rule is for everybody? How do we figure out what rules actually apply? which leads us to contractualism. And this is the philosophical school of thinking that Shore actually gives kind of pride of place to throughout the Good Place series and in his own book. Contractualism, or figuring out the social contract amongst ourselves. It is best spelled out by the modern philosopher T.M. Scanlon and his magnum opus, What We Owe to Each Other. Notice he doesn't put it in the form of a question. It is not, do we owe anyone anything? It is what we owe to each other. He starts from a place where he's assuming we do owe something to one another. And he goes on to describe it thusly. Imagine our crew has been at war with another crew for years, just slugging it out in a dense forest, firing on each other from trenches 100 feet apart. It's an absolute stalemate. Neither side has any advantage over the other and no hope of ever gaining one. Exhausted and weary, we call a temporary truce and de decide we somehow need to design and describe a mutually livable society we need a set of rules that can be accepted by both sides, no matter how wildly different our views are. And we obviously hold very different views, hence the endless trench warfare. Scanlon suggests we give everyone on both sides the power to veto every rule, and then we start pitching rules to one another. Assuming everyone is motivated to actually find some rules in the first place, that everyone is reasonable, the rules that pass are the ones that no one on either side can reject. I am reasonable, he says, if when you and I disagree, I'm willing to constrain or modify my pursuit of my own interests to the same degree that you are willing to constrain or modify your pursuit of your interests. He's after a shared willingness to modify our private demands in order to find a basis of justification that others also have reason to accept. Where we all safeguard everyone else's interests as equal to our own, not more important, but equally important, because we're all motivated to find a way out of this quagmire. 
And of course, the first objection might be that how many reasonable people are you bound to find? This kind of relies on a critical mass of reasonableness amongst people who disagree with the, each other on fundamental levels. And his answer right up front is that any rule that seems unreasonable to the extreme of any viewpoint is automatically rejected because the veto power of mind side says that is not reasonable and it doesn't get to be one of the rules. Eventually it's just the reasonable people who sit down at the table to make the rules. Sure, for his own part, says this is kind of the more comforting, hopeful philosophy that he hangs his hat on, that he accepts. It accounts for the objections about the reasonableness and unreasonableness of some people, but it still relies on that critical mass. And let's admit it, even in these times, reason seems like a rare creature, doesn't it? But all of the objections aside, Shore finds that each school in Western philosophy up until now holds a piece of the answer of what it means to be good, to obtain virtue, to maximize happiness, to do what one must, to do what one ought to do when the world says that is what it ought to, ought to be done, to work together to find rules that benefit everybody even when we disagree. Some combination of all that can lead us in the direction of good. But can we, as the good place demands, be perfectly good or close enough to perfect that we earn our place? It doesn't look good, the series says. As the series progresses, we find out that everybody is actually in the bad place all along. Shore's other inspiration for the series is Sartre's No Exit, where we learn hell is other people, and that's just how hell decides to engineer things here. Michael is actually a bad place architect, and he's picked these four people specifically for all of their foibles and their failings to play off one another and eventually just torture one another by being together. And here's how their personalities clash. Cheaty, of course, is indecisive. He is a strict... Kantian. He can't determine what the universal maxim is because he can never be entirely sure if it is the ought that he must do, if it is entirely good. And so he just sits around having a stomach ache all the time because he can't decide, which drives everyone around him mad, which alienated all his relationships in life. Eleanor is the most self-centered individual who ever lived. Everything is about what's convenient for her. And again, she torpedoes all her relationships in life because she's only thinking about herself. Tahani, the philanthropist, does good for everybody and has helped and made happy a lot of people. She has done the utilitarian thing, maximizing happiness in the world, but she has been doing it all for attention, for the recognition she never got from her own family because her sister was the golden child. And Jason, with no impulse control, with maybe a seventh grade education, incredibly hilariously dumb, too dumb to know better. And these four have been dropped into hell to drive one another crazy.
There are obstacles, obviously, to moral perfection. Our varied personalities rubbing up against each other in small spaces being one of them. Sure lists many others, many other impedances to our, our perfection as good people. First, the idea of moral dessert, not dessert like an ice cream sundae, but the sense that we deserve something because we've been good. Oh, you know what? I can, I can uh, not put my shopping cart back in the corral today because I did all these good things before I went grocery shopping. I deserve a break because being good is hard. Or what about ism? Yeah, sure, okay, maybe I, I screwed up, maybe I made a mistake and this good thing I tried to do didn't turn out to be all that good or I actually did something bad. But what about all the, what about all the genocide over there? I mean, that, that's worse, right? So what does it matter that I did this bad thing? Or it's our sense of shame and guilt that comes with knowing we've done something bad and shame is a force that often leads us to double down on the bad things that we do. And then there's the complexity of the world today. What are the virtues that we name today that probably Aristotle could never think of? And is the good thing we're doing good out unto the seven and seventieth generation? Is it, does it cause harm at some point? Yeah, I'm eating healthily, but the almond farmers are using so much water right now. Isn't really good. And then just simple moral exhaustion. It is hard to do the right thing all the time. There's only so much we can handle. So what we find in Shure's book, and as the series The Good Place continues, is that perfection is impossible. The world is complex. The point system is completely arbitrary. It can't keep up with the complexity of the world. And as the series moves on, we find out that actually no one has ever been admitted to the good place in the last 500 or so years. That's how bad the points have gotten. And the bad place has been exploiting that loophole this whole time, happy to take everybody into their neighborhoods. The truth is, Seeking out moral perfection is probably the greatest obstacle to being morally perfect in the long run. Shore talks about another contemporary philosopher, Susan Wolfe, who wrote a book called Moral Saints, about the problem of moral sainthood, that the more we give of ourselves to others to try to do the right thing, assuming we are utilitarian in outlook or even Kantian in outlook, the more time we spend doing good for others to maximize happiness, the more we find we're actually minimizing our own happiness in the process. We are losing our complete sense of self by trying to do the right thing all the time. And in the process, we can't let ourselves off the hook quite that easily when we slip up. The Good Place illustrates this with a character named Doug Forsett who is the only person to have ever glimpsed how the system really works between good and bad on the points. He was on acid once, he saw the universe in a split second, and then he lived the rest of his life trying to maximize his good points. The ultimate utilitarian nightmare because he is not a happy person trying to make everybody else happy. 
up to the point where a kid in his neighborhood realizes that he's a pushover and a doormat and bullies him all the time, and Doug just lets him do it. And when they ask him why, because it makes the kid happy. Moral perfection gets in our own way. Moral perfection is actually its own kind of torture to us. Eleanor is visited by the real Eleanor Shellstrop late in the first season of the show, the Eleanor who was supposed to go to the good place before there was a mix-up. And because she's not really Eleanor and really the person she's pretending to be, they can paint her as the most morally perfect person. She has done nothing but give of herself to make the world better. Her favorite meal is a hunger strike that she went on. Everything she does is perfect and good and helps the world, and it drives Eleanor crazy. Because here's the person who deserves to be here, and she knows she can't live up to that. And it's the living up to it that she tortures herself with. Does it even matter if I'm trying to be good if I can't be that good? The perfect version of ourselves in goodness is unachievable, demoralizing. But the point is to try. We're the, we're the indigo girls in Galileo crying out to the universe, how long till my soul gets it right? How long is thousands of years, at least according to the good place? Michael, at first, is upset that his experiment in torturing one another has gone wrong, and so he reboots the whole neighborhood to try to make it work again. But every time the four come together, they work out their differences, they figure out they're in the bad place, to the point where he's rebooted the neighborhood 800 times, unable to get the results that he wants. And he starts to get a little inspired by the tenacity of these human beings finding one another and bonding. So he gets to a place where he wants to help them get to the real good place, and himself too, a self-serving choice because he's in trouble with the bad place, having done what he's done at this point. So they get to a point where they agree to have their lives start over without the point of death that brought them into this whole system in the first place to see if they had enough time in their short lives, would they get to be the good people they want to be? And where we get to in the redefined cosmology of the good place is this. Everybody gets endless do-overs of their life until they get it right. Until they get to a point of good enough and can start to work on the rest of themselves. Chance after chance after chance to get to the good place in a medium place designed just for them. But here's the thing, we don't get that kind of time. Even in the good place, the afterlife is necessary to have that repetition, the do-overs and the do-overs. What's the chance for us if this is, as far as we know, all that we get? Shore's answer in the book and part of what we get in the series, although it's a little murkier, seems to be for us to lean into the obstacles to perfection. 
Shore calls it in the book moral jaywalking. Take jaywalking, for instance. It is technically against the rules, but sometimes it's just easier. It's 104 degrees outside, and the crosswalk is all the way over there, and I'm just running into the post office, and I'm not really hurting anybody. So we, we take a little slip. We fail in our attempt to do good. Sometimes we do it by accident, sometimes we do it on purpose, just to alleviate that moral exhaustion. Or, in another regard, practice breaking the small rules when the morals of the time call on us to break one of the big rules that's unjust, exercising our systems. In the end, the goal for sure in his book is this, accepting our failures wiping away the need to be perfect and accepting the inevitable failures in our attempt to be good people because that's just who we are. That is where caring about doing the right thing leads us, he says. When we do fail, he writes, in matters great or small, we take a second to acknowledge our failure to ourselves and try to remember that feeling the next time we have a decision to make. Or in the words of Beckett, try again, fail again, fail better. That's what we're going for. Try again. Grow a little. Leave things better than we found them the first time. Let the soul of the next generation get it right. Following our examples. In the end, perfection is neither possible nor is it desirable. What matters is what we do with our own moral failings and how we grow from them. Or as Michael says, what matters isn't if people are good or bad. What matters is if they're trying to be better today than they were yesterday. And so here we are, neither in the good place or the bad place, probably in a medium place of our own devising right now, living out our one wild and precious life. Don't worry, everything is fine. Just don't torture yourself with perfection. Lean into the imperfections, lean into the obstacles, and get ready to leave the medium place just a little better for the next people who follow. May it be so.